This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 193. We're recording on Thursday, January 19th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. It is an auspicious day. Uh, oh. I, you know, we're not going to talk about it here, I guess. No. Um, it is a weird mood. I have, I've, I'm in a weird mood. I think uh, a lot of people are in a weird mood of our political persuasion, um, and even some that aren't, uh, it seems to me. Um, but here we are, and we're going to book through it, uh, I guess. And we have a little Obama-related stuff, but it's all on the bookish Book uh, through tip. it. I see what you yeah. did there. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, is anything else to say? What's going on? What, what's going on in the world? Anything? What is going I mean, on? I mean, I mean, is there anything else to say before we get into the show? I feel like, is, is there, are there things going on? I, well, I don't really know. I, I don't know. My world this week is preparing for the Women's March, which will have happened oh, right. by the time this podcast airs, it will be over. Yes. Um, so I'm getting ready for that. It seems happily for me, like everyone I know is getting ready <laughs> for that. It does uh, seem it will be impressive. To, to, to It'll be an interesting sight. I'm reading some good books. 2017's off to a good start. But yeah, it feels like the world does feel kind of weird. This you know. week, there's well, I, I speak for myself, but I'm sure everyone else listening, be safe down there. Yes, we're, we're going to worry about you. I, I know there's a lot of people and stuff going on. I don't know. I don't know how one just is safe in a huge. I mean, I, I don't know what you do, but whatever it is to be done, do deploy all the countermeasures that you have at your disposal to to take care of. Yourself. I will do that indeed. All right, let's do a sponsor and let's get on with yeah, the book we'll, here. Yeah, we'll kick it all off. This first sponsor feels especially timely today. It's called "It's All Absolutely Fine." Life is complicated, so I've drawn it instead. It's by Ruby Elliott. Uh, this is for anybody who struggles with not feeling absolutely fine. Um, or uh, a book I was reading recently said, uh, none of us is okay, but all of us are fine. And I think that's sort of the same idea. Um, she tackles the not-so-simple subjects of depression, anxiety, and body image using unique, humorous, and a brutally honest voice and really great eccentric illustrations that remind you that you're not alone and it's okay to struggle and it's okay to talk about struggling. Uh, this is kind of a mix of Jenny Lawson and hyperbole and a half. Uh, so you get this really direct, and they sent me a copy. The book is great. You get these uh, sort of really direct uh, and short discussions of stuff like depression and anxiety and body image and like the um, sort of negative things that we say to ourselves about ourselves and the things that we worry about that never come to pass. And they're uh, accompanied by these very simple and hilarious line drawings. Um, the book also includes uh, um, some longer personal essays. Uh, Jenny, not I'm sorry, not Jenny, Ruby Elliott uh, sort of rose to prominence on Tumblr initially. And you can see her drawings across across social media. She's also been featured on BuzzFeed and Refinery29. Um, I think if you uh, have both of the hyperbole and a half books on your shelf and you've just been like waiting for something similar to it, or you've been reading the blog s for a long time, then it's all absolutely fine is a great thing to pick up for yourself. It's going to make a good gift for just about everybody. I found it to be, you know, very validating as I've been flipping through it. Uh, so it's called It's All Absolutely Fine by Ruby Elliott. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. I will say this is one to pick up and print, kids. So consider that as you do your book shopping. Again, It's All Absolutely Fine by Ruby Elliott. I mean, I guess the first is really a twist. I mean, I don't know. It's like nostalgia for something that's still here, I guess. Um, probably if you listen to this show, I saw it all over my, mm -hmm. my personal Facebook feed. So like that's people in my 
not necessarily bookish world, um, though, you know, I, my friends and family are probably more bookish than average on the whole, but still, this um, interview that President Obama did with uh, Michiko Kakutani, uh, you can read the whole transcript about his, how the books got him through being president, basically. Um, uh, it's interesting, it's wide-ranging. I don't know that we learned a lot we didn't know about him since we've, you know, we've talked before on the show. He'll give an interview from time to time. He's, um, he goes book shopping, releases book recommendation lists. I, I think we all sort of know that he is a real book nerd. Like in, mm-hmm. in a re- I mean, I don't know that he has a Goodreads account kind of thing and a huge, you know, Read Harder Challenge TBR, though I think he'd be into that in a way, which would be awesome. But like books are super important to him. He reads things old and new from nonfiction to fiction, things where he just wants to read about something, but also things uh, where he's trying to make himself a better thinker and person and politician and husband and father and person in the world. Um, reading, he name checks Thinking Fast and Slow, which I don't, and, and you know, Diaz, and mm-hmm. I don't know, and is this made for us? Problem? He, like he did that interview, Three Body Problem, he did the interview <laughs> with Marilyn Robinson, like, I, I don't, unless he reveals himself to be Dan Brown, I don't know what else he can do <laughs> well, for us here, yeah, Rebecca. You know, so I just, last, I don't know what to do. Last week, he was joking that he wanted a job making playlists, and Spotify created a job opening called President of Playlists that, like, someone yes. t- playfully tweeted uh to him and i I, like are we gonna get a job application from president obama to come work at book riot because that i mean i'm here for it i I was thinking that if he if he agreed to it i'd bring back reading lives just for obama i mean and it's just him every week it's just him every week forever (laughs) sure i mean i wanted to be there it's just him in an open mic talking about i don't need uh, we've done 190 some odd of these shows together like one of us can bounce or maybe we need a third chair that's what i'm saying i will gladly give up my chair (laughs) I mean, gladly is strong. <laughs> Willingly. That's Willingly. very generous of you, because I was not going to go down without a fight on that one. Yeah, no, that's all right. You can talk to, to, to the big B.O. Um, so I'm not sure what else to say here. I mean, you, there's a full transcript, which I think is worth reading, too. I mean, nerd things. I mean, real nerd things. Real nerd things. Michiko Kakutani was actually in the Oval Office, and so he's met her. Like, I don't know if people know this, but she's, like, very secretive. Yes. Like, she doesn't go to things like if you Google her, like you see a, a headshot from like 1986. Um, she's not in any of these pictures. Right. Um, you know, it's weird. Like not even in the reflections. Like there's this one of him at the at the Oval Office table, and there's a bunch of reflections of like him in the lamp, and it's like clearly shot so that she's not. It's very <laughs> odd. Like that whole situation is very strange. Um, so that's one where if you're really in the weeds and you follow books uh, in that kind of way, which you probably do, frankly, if you're listening to the show, is interesting. Also, this sort of novelist summit, um, <laughs> which is a, uh, where he had five novelists come to the White House uh, last week. Dave Eggers, Colson Whitehead, Zadie Smith, um, Joe Diaz, and Barbara Kingsolver just talked with them about the political media landscape and talk shop and book tours and how he likes to write in their processes. Um, I guess this is just what you do on the way out, right? This is the this is the equivalent of like senior year throwing a big party yeah, at this, the frat house. You know, at the um the press corps dinner when he walked out to you're going to miss me when I'm gone. Like that's what this whole the like the final week of Obama press and speeches yeah. really feel that way to me. Like he is constrained uh by his current position in how direct and forthcoming he can be about his perspective on what's about to happen uh in the country. But we're getting the all these subtle 
subtle things I think that are happening. And so this is a like, this is a look at him, a genuine look at him at uh, what books and reading have meant to him as a president. And like one of the many aggregators that picked up this piece uh, was saying he's the most literary president since Lincoln. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's an interesting uh, correlation. Bill, Bill read a lot. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you compare these yeah. things. I don't know if we get out like spreadsheets I mean, and see what right, you read. No, I mean, and it just makes a nice headline yeah, um, to say that, but it's also forward looking of uh, look at this and compare it to what you're about to have. Uh, well, don't do that. that that's crazy making. I mean, <laughs> it is crazy making, yes. uh, but he's talking about, it's very, it's so wide ranging. He talks about learning to um, write from reading things out loud and that this is how he approaches writing his speeches. We get Shakespeare in here. He says that like reading Shakespeare it has helped ground him in uh, sort of thinking about how long, having a long view of history, really yeah. how long we've all been here and hopefully how much longer we will be that things may not be immediately as urgent as they can seem he writes about um books that he's given to malia he just recently gave her a kindle that was filled with books he wanted to share with her so he talks about some of those and yeah. uh, what those books have meant to him reading things by people that he disagrees with in order to to get wider perspectives it's uh this is this feels very um obama and Man, and and he even says that he hopes to use his presidential center. I was just going to say this yeah. um, to widen the audience for good books, which we get his recommendations frequently. As what do you like, think that means? I don't know. And then encourage a public quote conversation about books. So, like, I hope we're going to get the big bo book club. Like, like this is what hey, Barry's you can't spell this book month? without bo. That's all I've got to say about that. I mean, I think. I think it's all. I mean, maybe big like citywide reads nationwide. I mean, he could try whatever he wants. Well, I mean, it's yeah, like we looked at um, what in the 2016 year in review we were talking about the Andrew Luck book club yeah, again and how they right. put that together and he picks uh, sort of a veterans and a novice read for each month and yeah. makes a little video about them. Like that would be fantastic um, and so interesting. His taste is so wide ranging that um, it would be. It, it sounds really like it's very possible that some. I mean. Historically, the role of a former president has been largely philanthropic, right? Advocacy, you know, also fundraising, giving money out, being advocates for various policy things. It seems very possible that his own presidential center and possibly his post-presidential life will be to some non-trivial extent about books and reading, mm -hmm. you know, and it could be as as – the community organizing thread would be, you know, sort of early childhood education and adult sure. literacy and things Access, like that. Yeah. Access, but, you know, maybe he's going to be writing a book. I mean, I'm sure he's going to write a, a big presidential biography, possibly two. I mean, he seems inclined to do something like that. He's already written two books, so it wouldn't be a surprise. In fact, I would be shocked if we didn't see a really interesting, introspective um, thorough book from him about his time in office, but I expect him to write about. I mean, he's a, he's a young man for uh, for a two term president. Mm -hmm. um, seems to have a lot of energy left, um, you know. So I, when it comes to books, really anything uh, seems on the table. You know, there's whispers of a novel. He talks here about he used to write. He wrote some short stories about people in his. You know, mm -hmm. that kind of juvenile is the kind of thing that would typically come out after a president right. has died. You know, that's goes into the archives or something, or maybe while he's in office, but he donated. That would be fascinating to see as well. But I mean, I don't know what you can ask for more out of a president. Um, if you're a book nerd, then what Obama gives you. I mean, I don't really, you can't, there's nothing out. I don't even, like I said, unless he, 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 he unzipped, Dan Brown unzips one day and it's an Obama <laughs> under there. Um, I, That's I don't like really the see. the best possible version of three kids in a trench coat. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. Like just all of our favorite people turn out to be Obama. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think it'll be really fascinating to see what he does with advocacy. And I can't imagine that we would get a memoir from him that doesn't include some reflections on the way that books and writing have shaped him because he every given every opportunity to talk about the things that have made him who he is. He talks about books by choice. He brings these things up. He seeks out Marilyn Robinson to like make. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that was he trying to get votes in Iowa there? That's not I mean, that's just because he wants to. Right. And he says in this piece that that's how he became friends with Marilyn Robinson is that he was reading the Gilead books when he was working in Iowa before he was um, before his uh, before he was representing Illinois and he wanted to get to know the people of Iowa and he read them and so then he wanted to get to know her and now they sort of have this long-ranging friendship but like mm-hmm. a Barack Obama Marilyn Robinson headlined National Book Festival would be amazing or maybe he'll do what Bill Gates has done and keep like a you know sort of low friction blog with some book recommendations mm-hmm. or at least just a thing at the end of the year about the 10 best things that he's read like uh his personal yeah, that's like, super interesting too i've yeah. been wondering like what's going to happen to his personal social media like he and michelle both use social pretty frequently and you can like they sign their own tweets themselves and so like is are, is he gonna like be instagramming what he's reading on vacation because i i'm here for that too you know the other thing when um I was in grad school at Columbia when Al Gore lost the 2000 election and he came to teach at Columbia for, Mm -hmm. I think, a couple of semesters. You could see Obama teaching, Mm -hmm. you know, in that kind of circumstances too, uh, any number of topics, but one about books, especially in a a literature department would be fascinating. What is that course? Um, We talked about the... um the syllabus lineup for that the course at Columbia that they do sort of a freshman humanities overview and one of the Tony Morrison titles had been like the first book oh, by Lit Hum, I, yeah, yeah, which I've taught. I mean, he, I mean, that that goes from Homer to Virginia Woolf plus. It, t- it takes a year. All mm-hmm. freshmen at Columbia are required to take it, um, and it's it, it's it's a phenomenal experience in the right setting. I mean, that's the kind of thing you would do if you want. I mean. Uh, there were very, very um, prominent people that taught that course because they wanted to. Yeah, like maybe you know, he'll just teach it for and themselves. put it on YouTube. Yeah, well, he's a, I mean, his his relationship with Columbia is a little fraught. He doesn't seem to love Columbia. For uh, my sense is that his time there wasn't um, completely um, uh, positive. And some of that he transferred somewhere else and put it on YouTube. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they would make the University of Chicago, University yeah. of Illinois, and Chicago. I, you know, I I don't. Do you know where their home base is going to be? I, I haven't done in, a lot of. They going to be in dc for at least the next two oh right because of the kids school mm-hmm. right 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 so you yeah, know maybe george washington yeah, I, I don't know i'm there sure there are a lot of options all opportunities are there but he, some of them can be quasi vanity project not vanity project but for pleasure or for Passion personal projects, edification yeah. right yeah which i think this is the thing that gore did at um columbia which was it about climate change and journalism that's i wonder it's been a while i can't really remember um but you could see him doing something like that or maybe like a public lecture series or one of these massively mm. online courses where mm-hmm. there's a bunch of time any it's all possible it's really just what he feels inclined to do and where his um uh his interest and energy leads him because i'm i can only sure that his predominant feeling at this point is uh, exhaustion um that's the that's the thing that most immediately outgoing presidents say is mm-hmm. how tired um, right take are. a long vacation though the before and after pics of him look better than i have to say the last couple few presidents well, in, that have served eight, term, eight years start. <laughs> it does it does it does it does but he just doesn't seem like his smile is still as big and he's he's certainly older and graying and more than you would expect sort of an average person to have grayed and, and aged in eight years maybe but um i don't know i remember seeing the, the before and after of bush and clinton of eight years they really looked 
they really looked older. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's a sen- if that's any indication of his own personal um, health. And he's very healthy and works out and is, pays attention to his diet and things like that. Or if he's just preternaturally buoyant um, to some degree. Okay, well, there's that. Go read it. We'll put in the show notes. You can find them at podcast at book... Um, no, that's our email. Why do I... Bookwrite.com slash listen. Also, for the, last, for the first time last week, um, I included a link directly to the show notes in the description of the show that shows up in your podcast catcher. So you can just click there as well. Um, I, I do recommend reading the full transcript. Um, the, the write-up that Kakutuni shaped around the transcript is, is a good mm-hmm. you know, abstract of it, but come on. Yeah, the whole transcript is good. And I haven't looked, so it might already exist, but it seems that if you were looking for like a good reading challenge for yourself for the year, if you weren't going to do Read Harder or you want multiple reading challenges, Mm. you could start at like a Goodreads reading challenge around the Obama book recommendations, even just around the ones that he's mentioned in this interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Very interesting. Okay, let's do statistics. Um, Okay. So... A lot of talk. Uh, we talked about it. Um, ebooks, where are they going? Audiobooks, where are they going? Audiobooks, um, in terms of the the number of people listening to at least one, as we said, uh, we this has become one of our touchstone um, statistics. I think is only up marginally over the last few years. You know, it's up like thirty percent from eleven to fourteen percent. I think is what mm-hmm. we saw with the Pew study, and, and and it doesn't to us at least capture the groundswell of interest. And participation in listening to audiobooks, at least among the people we know. And some of it, we've, we sort of speculated that there aren't a lot of people listening to one, but if you get hooked, you, read, you listen to a bunch. So the, the number per listener is probably going up, but the actual number of total listeners of audiobooks is only going up marginally. And then the similar one is the plateau slash downward trend of ebooks. And one thing we've speculated, um, you and I, is about we don't have any stats. Of, we don't, at least we didn't have any statistics about the usage and the uptick, if there are any, in library borrowing of said formats. Right. Because it would it would stand to reason, and these things have gotten better over time, and Hoopla and Overdrive and some other things have gotten better over time, and people I think have just become more accustomed to trying and figure out how to get an ebook from your library on your Kindle or an audiobook on your smartphone and all that situation. So there was a report this week from Overdrive, which is I believe the largest of the the library. Um, I guess uh, yes sol- solutions. Is that your understanding yes, of it too? Yeah, it is. So uh, in 2016, readers of um, of uh, public library patrons that use OverDrive borrowed 16% more ebooks year over year. Okay. And then 34% more audiobooks hmm. compared to last mm-hmm. year. So that those are good gains, especially when you compare them to the overall decline in ebook sales that we're getting from the big five or from traditional publishers that not only are they not down they're actually up right um relatively considerably and then audiobooks are up more than double what ebooks are themselves um a surprise would you have expected that Where, how do you how do you find that number uh, you know i guess i'm not surprised and i'm sitting with why right now i think it's because these things are not price dependent. Like so much of the yeah. the change or lack thereof that we've seen in uh, ebook sales growth and to some extent audiobook growth, as we've talked about exhaustively, is pinned to what publishers are doing with the prices for ebooks and audiobooks to make reading the print edition or buying the print edition more appealing. But when you remove that element, we're living in a world where more people than ever before have smartphones um, and it's easy to read ebooks on them and to download audiobooks to 
them. Um, and so any audiobook that's coming from Overdrive is a digital audiobook. These aren't people checking out like CDs, the packages of CDs from their libraries. If you've got the device already and you don't have, you're not p- paying for the thing that you're about to read or listen to, then you get to make more of a choice about how would I prefer to consume. You know, like it can just be about your preferred format. Do you want an ebook or an audiobook or print? Um, not factoring in whatever's what is available or not from your library. And so like it makes sense to me to see an increased use of digital delivery options um, because digital is just increasing in our lives in so many other ways. And it's um, I think it's a nod towards ebooks and audiobooks digitally that when you remove the constraint of what you would have to pay for this, um, we're seeing more people use them. Yeah, um, a couple other statistics. I think that all makes sense to me as well. Um, let's see. I was going to throw some other things at you. Um, the number the number of people who used Overdrive Listen for audiobooks. So this is just the number of people, not checkouts. Jumped sixty seven percent. Oh wow! In twenty sixteen. So that's a, that's a big number. Mm-hmm. Um, children's and Y A ebook collections were up nineteen percent. Um, total ebook circulation through Overdrive was 139 million checkouts, and then of audiobooks was 55 million checkouts. So about a third, which seems to me very good yeah. as a ratio. I mean, very strong for audiobooks. Um, let's see. Oh, most popular ebook titles in libraries in 2016 were Julie McElwain's A Murder in Time, which I have never heard of. Oh, I think um, Liberty talked about that one. Yeah, I'm sure she did. Uh, followed by The Girl on the Train and then John Grisham's Rogue Lawyer. Most checked out audiobooks, The Girl on the Train, All the Light We Cannot See, and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, so, you know, that's that's really fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would make sense that as more people are checking out digital media from their libraries, they would be buying less of it, I suppose. Yeah. I, I But... This is always one of those questions that that's rankled because I don't really have a good answer, and then sometimes the answers I see I don't quite believe because there's some premises that are kind of bonkers in it. But like the the the, the story goes that library checkouts don't cannibalize sales, right? Which doesn't make intuitive sense to me. But I know intuitive sense is um, often drivel, but I just don't understand yeah. how that can be possible. And I feel like people have well, there's studies that show blah blah blah. Like I've never seen one. That was compelling. Have you seen one? I, Do you buy that 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 that, that so relationship? Like the piece of nuance that I've been given for that, that I'm also a, a bit skeptical about, is that like a diehard library reader is like a dedicated library user is a dedicated library user and that like a person who's just going to get their books from the library is just going to get them from the library they weren't going to buy them period so it's not cannibalizing in that way like the possibility for that sale never existed. Um, it's like the person imagine has $0 in their pocket. So they don't, they can't choose to go to the store or the library. They have to go to the library. They're, they're not cannibalizing sales. They just wouldn't have eaten. Right. They, exactly. Yeah, right. Um, but that it neglects what happens to like, I haven't seen, and I would love to see like what happened to library use in like 2008. Like when, right. when the economy started collapsing, book sales were hurting, but did library use go up? Um, and was it proportional at all? Was it like we sold 15% fewer books, but library circulation went up that 15% and the people who were buying books became library users or does something else happen there? Um, I don't know if those numbers exist. If they do, I would love to see what happens, like how that works and how it, it happens there. Um, 
because otherwise it is just it's puzzling like uh how to do the like yes use your library and and the publishers then don't worry i guess it, also, it could affect it that like a library edition of a print book is often more expensive and the ebook prices are much more expensive like, right, yeah. um, for the libraries to purchase the licensing than to be able to rent out those ebooks to people. So maybe that's what they mean by And like, like it, five to six times more expensive yeah. in ebook cases and that often with constraints about how many times and it can be checked out. And maybe blah, blah, that's blah. the math that gets done to prevent yeah. library usage from quote unquote cannibalizing book sales. Um, but it is, it, I think that's an open question. It's like, Taken as received wisdom, but I haven't ever actually seen evidence of it. I mean, because the, I think that people want to make that argument to to to, I guess, not have any blight on library usage at all, right? Because the, the right. other argument would be, well, libraries are good, but there is this, uh, you know, consequence. I guess sure. I would say, which is that people. Because I think it has to be true for me that I don't spend as much money on books and when my cycles when I'm, my library uses up. So I've been doing this thing the last couple of years. Um, this is wildly idiosyncratic Jeff usage pattern, so bear with me for a second. But I think it, it's an illustrative point, which is in January, what I've been doing is I go back and I pick up all the trade paperbacks of the comic series I follow mm. from the last year that came out, mm-hmm. which is fun because then I can do pick up two volumes of Miss Marvel, two two um, two volumes of Bitch Planet at once. Like, and I can get them and you know I can run through them and I spend sort of January and I read like twenty five to thirty five volumes of trade paperbacks, but I don't buy those. Right. Like I get them all from the library now. So the, the thought experiment is if the library doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Do I just shift my buying dollars around? So I'm going to spend the same amount of bo- money on books anyway, but I'm just shifting around. So I'm going to read ebooks. Uh, I'm going to read. I'm going to borrow some books from the library, but then I'm also going to buy some more hardcovers because I know in my mind that I, I quote unquote saved money by going to the library. Or is the aggregate amount of aggregate aggregate number of dollars I'm personally spending on books go down? And if it does, is that made up by the money publishers are getting? based on my, you know, my very small drop of water into the usage pool that gets, you know, sucked up and paid for by the Multnomah County Library or the Brooklyn Public Library. Where I, Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I just yeah. I just don't know how that all shakes out. Yeah, I don't know um, either. I would be very surprised. And it seems a little convenient if the answer was, it all would be the same if there were no libraries. <laughs> right. And how, right? how do you know? You just, right, as we said many times, you can't A-B test the universe. Right. Um, so we can't run like a Monte Carlo simulation starting right now where libraries <laughs> were gone. Um, or where Because the other one would be interesting right. was if, we, if it was only libraries. What if you right, couldn't yeah. buy books? Right. Like that if would be also only, a fascinating... Right. If you could only use the library, what yeah. would happen? It is, it would be interesting. Um, Given the so two it, possible scenarios, I'm going with the one where only the library exists. You mean just your to, for your personal preference, like that? If we had to pick, pick. One? I think for like quality of the world, I would take libraries over. I would take having libraries and no bookstores over having bookstores. And uh, you no are libraries. you are a socialist. You really. I mean, that's not even social. I mean, I don't even know what that's common. I guess I don't. It, it's inter- <laughs> it's interesting to think about. Like I don't know because like, shocking no one who listens because to this both show. somehow both independent bookstores and bookstores in general and libraries both say are they, are they it can't be right it just can't, it can't. work out that like, they it, both are sort of equally necessary and I aggregate goods that there is a librarian who's writing us an email as they're listening to this about how oh this, i'd love to know i'd love yeah, to be wrong i would love i'd love works. for I, it to be true it just doesn't have, it feels too self-fulfilling to say yeah. actually so, they're know, both equally necessary and you can do whatever and it all comes out in the wash i'm like I really oh, like, that seems very magical thinking 
I know I've always suspected, as Uncle Joe would say, that it's a bunch of malarkey. But yeah. it's like malarkey that I'm totally fine with because it reinforces that it's not a reader's problem to like think about the health of a publisher's bottom line. And and we've talked about that before that like we don't we're not in for guilting readers about yeah. like you got to buy books to support the publishers or like in the world of comics like it's your fault if a comic doesn't get made because not enough people pre-ordered it like it's not a reader's fault and how you choose to buy your books or to borrow them from the library i think is yeah. uh you know personally is like an ethically neutral thing unless you're like i don't know supporting something that does harm or runs on sweatshops but like I, and a person who buys their books online a person who uses the library a person who goes to barnes and noble a person who uses their indie bookstore like you're equally as valid of a reader um and so i kind of don't care if it's not true that library usage mm. doesn't cannibalize book sales like keep saying it because library users have no reason to feel bad about using the library no no i i, I should say i i I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not interested in that at all. Oh, yeah, yeah, I hope no, that's I know, clear. I know yeah. you're not. I'm just saying. Yeah. Like, I kind of don't care if the data yeah. wouldn't bear it out, and if, if in fact it turned out that library usage does cannibalize book sales, like just keep saying it doesn't. That's fine. This is fine. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because it would. Fine. It would only be. I guess it would only really matter if it's if it if it somehow improved reading culture in a meaningful way. If we were to all act otherwise, which right. is also a premise that I'm not sure about, right? Yeah. Like, would it really be that is, is publishing hurting so badly that if they got 11% more reader dollars and libraries didn't exist? I mean, that's clearly an aggregate loss for reading culture. I'm just more talking about book sales and money right, getting right. into the publishing. I'm, reading culture and the publishing industry, as I try to emphasize, are right. two Very markedly separate. different. Though I do, I mean... I, I do. I do agree. I mean, we both agree about that point about not shaming or judging people. But I also like to be like an ethical book. You know, I know that I have a, a finite amount of funds, and it's not the case that all those dollars affect the authors and publishers of particular books equally. Like, sure. The good example is this January, um, you know, com uh, comic book trade paperback binge I go on because I know, for example, that a it's better for a particular series if you buy it issue by issue. And B, to buy it all, you know, even if it isn't trade paperback. And those are dollars that I'm not giving directly into. The, and those money, that money gets put into audiobooks for me. Or recently, right. it's a lot of hardcover literary history because I'm interested in that. Or other, it just goes to other places. And sometimes, you know, I do at moments try to think about, well, if I'm going to spend $25 on a hardback, I'd like it to go to this debut novelist sure. rather than say, I love Dan Brown, but if I get the book from the library, I think he's going to be okay. Yeah, and like right? among our that matter, but that doesn't that feels like it has to matter that kind yeah, of individual think, decision. Yeah, yeah, I think it. I think it does. I think our individual decisions like that can matter. And like we have among the staff and the contributors at Book Riot, uh, folks who make choices like. Um, whatever dollars I spend on books in a year, I'm only spending on books by people of color and I'll check out books by white guys sure. from the library, yeah. that sort of thing. So you can, I think you take your own values into consideration right. and the thing that you think is best for the world and for reading culture when you decide where to buy your books. But the notion that there is like an objective best place for you to get your books for the state of publishing, yes. um, we have not yet scene. Uh, and there's a lot of attempt. I think there are many attempts to play on that or to imply that there are that like, um, if you were really a good and ethical reader, you would buy every book that you read and you would buy it from an independent bookstore. Um, 
or that you would never buy a book online. And you would spend all or, of your disposable income on micro... <laughs> you know, like that you could go exactly, all the way down, right? Exactly, yeah. right. And it's that pressure uh, on readers from something that pretends to be the objective best or right way to spend your book money that, that I object to. I think yeah. we all do and should uh, take our the, the things that we value and want to support into consideration when we're making our buying decisions, for sure. Um, but, but this, like, readers are better if they buy books than use them from the library is also malarkey. And so that yeah, comes back around. Like I would just, I'm fine with it. If it's malarkey, like keep using the library. Everything yeah. is fine. <laughs> um, anyways, we got, we got down that. Got Let's down. come back out. <laughs> we didn't group. We could have grouped these a little bit better. Cause this is, we're going to go back to the Obamas here in a minute. Um, but while we're on audiobooks again, publishers outside of library lending, which again, I also don't know what the financial models are for libraries. Um, you know, get, sourcing audiobooks mm-hmm. like maybe maybe the publishers came out very well. Um, there's some consolidation in the audiobook market that we don't really care about, except to say people are bullish in the publishing industry. Um, there's a subtle but important distinction that has emerged over the last 12 to 18 months, and that is where the timing of the publication. Like, mm-hmm. does it matter as much? Like, they're starting to think about the whole set of assumptions about audiobooks, um, you know, because there's also, audiobooks are kind of in this place where ebooks were, and to some degree still are, where there's a lot of backlist that you don't have audiobooks. And not every, not every frontlist title gets an audiobook now because it costs, yeah. you know, a few thousand dollars to do well. Um, and especially mid-list, independent presses, small presses, not-for-profit presses may not make financial uh, sense. So how do you figure out which ones to do? But as the pie is growing, is there room for more? How do you, how do you meet all this stuff out? So I think that's very interesting as well um, to think about these. It's kind of an experimental time in audio because there is a platform now. Um, Rachel Smalter Hall, who covers, does most of our audiobook content this week, did a post about the Lincoln and the Bardo audiobook from George Saunders, which is going to have 166 narrators. <laughs> which seems and like, like, with, it can't like with be celebrities, true. like all up along the line. They're like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, that's just a good, I mean, it's an interesting example because that, you know, it's Saunders and whatever, and it's a big title and whatever. But like, that's something that if you would have said that seven years ago, it would have felt it would have felt like right. Don Quixote, you know, the, tilting at windmills. Like, what are you doing? That makes right. no how sense. Like, and how much does that cost? <laughs> right. That's another thing I don't know. Like, is it on the P and L? Like, how much are they paying? Like Nick Offerman to do one? Like he's one of them, right? Like, right. To 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 pay him to be a, or is he doing it for free? I, I don't understand how. Right. And do they have works. to get them all into the studio, or is it like yeah. Nick Offerman goes into his home office and puts on his iPhone earbuds? <laughs> Like, can I, I he guess, record yeah. his audio bit and send it to them? Um, but the large but publishing feels like they have cracked into the everyday average reader and how to expand and build on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm using expand and build rather than exploit um, very consciously and carefully, <laughs> but maybe not fairly. Um, but people are, you know, they're trying to, to try to, and, the, and some of the publishers are doubling their audiobook output this year. Yeah, it's um, interesting. Which is really interesting. There, really there's interesting. a note in here, too, that I think is really interesting from um, Michelle Cobb, who's the executive director of the Audiobook um, mm-hmm. Audio Publishers Association. And she notes that um, one of the reasons that the CD format for audiobooks is still really important, which is a, a thing that we have both sort of raised our eyebrows at, like, why do these still exist and why is anyone buying a, you know, $72 set of CDs for an audiobook when you could get the 
the audible version is because of cars. And since cars last a long time, a lot of cars that people are driving around in now have CD players, yep. maybe don't have the auxiliary port to put your phone into. And if you rent a car, very likely mm-hmm. it's got a CD player in it. And so they're going to keep making CD audiobooks. It sounds like here basically for as long as cars continue to have CD players because, um, listening at home platform is on the agnostic rise. right but the car remains the dominant place where people consume audiobooks um, and then there's a little note here that technological advances have been made to produce small runs of cds that makes it more cost effective which is what's keeping this physical uh, we, we just figured this out now I, that's what i did i saw i was right, like, like we've been also, this with and now and like yeah. how cost effective how much does it cost yeah. still and why are they so expensive to purchase uh, i can buy a spindle of 500 blank cds at, at amazon for like five bucks mm-hmm. And I can burn them on my anyway. I thought that we know how big <laughs> businesses blow money on stuff like that. I can't even look at that because I'm just seeing like like flames uh, in my irises. Also, Penguin <laughs> Random House, their the their senior face. VP of of audiobooks said their production of audiobooks is going up from 900 to 1100 titles, and that gives you a sense. That's Penguin Random House audio, right? So mm-hmm. that's 50 percent of North American trade. They're only only. Doing eleven hundred titles in twenty seventeen, yeah. where they do is it fifty thousand something like yeah, that? It's, it's some crazy like and, number, and it doesn't note if all of those are front list or not. So it might no, not it even doesn't. be eleven hundred yeah. new titles. They could be going into mm-hmm. the backlist making audio versions of previously popular things. Um, really interesting. Really so. interesting stuff. And children's and, and young adult audiobooks too, which also makes sense that that's something that's lagged. Because audiobooks, when I was you know a, a younger man and a kid, was like the purvey of like old people, right? Like that's mm-hmm. what it, that's what I always thought of. Was like you books on tape was like an old person's game. Um, for for reasons I think that are understandable. Your eyesight goes. You have more leisure time. You have a car. Um, but now that you know kids have iPods and iPads and computers and things like that. That you know, young adult titles makes, and a lot of young adult books that you've heard of that coming out don't have an audiobook. They right. ju- they just don't have one in children's book too, and picture books, and all the way down chapter books, things like that. I've thought about recording some of my kids' favorites, you know, picture books, even just having me do it so they could mm. listen to it in the car or to calm down. Because that's you you couldn't find them like little boot truck. There's no audiobook of that, and I could do it for like thirty minutes. I could do a recording. And I think they would like it. Um, they would calm down and they could listen to it at night and maybe when I, the sitter's here or something else like that. But long way of saying there's still a lot of room to grow. And it's going to be one of those things as, as, as publishers put more resources and interest into it, probably that will have some sort of flywheel effect on interest itself growing, right? So yeah. if you can get into the virtuous cycle, and virtuous only meaning for the growth of the audiobooks as a, as a viable and growing publishing outlet – you, you're going to get a little bit of back and forth, you know, more attention, more interesting products, more blah, 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 and that'll, that'll grow it up. So that's very interesting to see. Um, I wonder if they think at all about how, I think we talked about this when we were talking about audiobooks a couple weeks ago, how about <clears throat> Audible is the big bad guy, and we don't hear the kinds of angst about Audible as we hear about sort of Amazon.com, the, the, the parent company. And I no, just that's wonder true. how much they're, do they, do they, are they as anxious about that? Because they're they're really reinvesting there. Are they going to get on their horse about audiobook? Pro- I, anyway, that's another. Yeah, it would seem to me like that Audible is so dominant, like that they have such a share of the audiobook market. I would guess a bigger one than Amazon has of just the general book market. Yeah, I would think that, so too. Yeah, that it's not even like it's 
it's so big that like you have you rely on audible so they're not afraid of uh, like this it's is like being afraid of gravity or something right? it's like i can't yeah. be afraid of audible i can't have a problem with it because i don't have audiobook distribution mm-hmm. without it um yeah. and they didn't really cut it like it's not like indie bookstores the it's not like the shop around right the your record shop didn't have right. beloved like, on audio yeah, tape right. books or like on the, tape or like your little indie bookstore wasn't thriving on selling giant folders of cd mm-hmm. audiobooks before so they also don't feel threatened like publishers don't have to play politics about audiobooks nearly the way that they have to about print oh quick aside about that um, i don't think we've talked about this on the show but there's a company out there called libro.fm that if you are interested in buying audiobooks through your independent bookstore some there is some kind of like thing where if you oh. buy it through your local independent bookstore on the libro.fm website or something they can get a cut of it kind of like kobo does and i think still does um so that's something if you are into audiobooks but you'd like to try to funnel you know launder some of your purchase money through an independent bookstore I, i'm kidding about that <laughs> check out libro.fm I, i've only looked at it it's been a while but i've seen them seem to be more active now and trying to figure out some ways to get more, you know, because that's that's something where an audiobook, the best format is, MP, I mean, the best format is digital yeah. for audiobook. And so an independent bookstore, they don't really have any purchase with trying to, I mean, house it on the shelf and you buy a little card, like how is it going to work? So Library FM is trying to pick them up. Anyway, for those of you who are staunch um, and loyal independent bookstore um, uh, buyers, that's something you might check out, uh, Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O. So I thought I'd mention that while we're yeah, that's cool. I'll have to look into let's, it. Let's do our next sponsor. Okay. We'll wrap up after that. Madison Reed is back this week. Uh, especially at the beginning of the year when you're scheduling like all of your appointments to get your business together, it can be really hard to find time to go into the salon. If you're getting hair color, it takes a lot longer. I think about this because becoming a mermaid on a regular basis takes more time than I would like to admit. Uh, So Madison Reed has a good solution for you. If you're currently coloring your hair in a salon or you go in from time to time to have your roots touched up, this could be revolutionary in saving you time and money. Madison Reed is luxurious at home salon quality hair color that has ingredients you can feel good about also. They've made coloring your hair easier than ever before because you get the support of expert colorists. There's color matching. You can select the most flattering shade. You get access to professional colorists via phone, text, or email. You can also use their uh, color match system on their website where you put in the hair color you're starting with and some information about like the texture of your hair and is it curly, is it straight, that kind of stuff, and the color that you want to end up with and it gives you the formula that you should use to get there. Madison Reed has thought of everything to make the at-home hair coloring experience easier than ever. So you can go to madison-reed, that's R-E-E-D, dot com to find your perfect shade Get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit use using the code BOOKRIOT. All one word. That's madison-read.com and the offer code is BOOKRIOT. So try it. Love it. That's the beauty of Madison Reed and that will save you some time in your beauty routine as well. So I, we, we broke up the Obama stuff so it's not like a couple of gut punches right in a row because another you know wonderful piece about uh, Michelle Obama who, you know, I guess even more than um, the president because it's her role really as mm-hmm. first lady to do more social advocacy and outreach and things like that will continue, but especially around children's books. She's thinking about doing a line of children's books, which makes a lot of sense. Um, yes. She's dar- done a cookbook called American Grown. She has another one on the way um, about her a memoir about her life in the White House. 
um, which is going to get a multi-million dollar oh, advance, yeah. which I'm sure will be interesting as well. But then, you know, once they get settled and sort of her staff comes back, like, what do you want to do? And I guess her chief of staff said that one thing that's been on the docket is children's books, which makes sense. It does make sense. sense. Yeah, it makes a little sense in the world. I don't, what anything else to say about that? together, Jeff? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Not since Victorian Albert. You know, I don't, I don't know what you even... What. <sighs> well, okay, we got to shake that one off. Let's do. What, how are we doing? Well, we're to, almost let me out tell of you time. Something, something that I just can't picture at all. We'll yeah, just end on yeah. A note. Okay, I, we got. A, was, we got a note of weirdness. I wondered if you were going to remember that one. Okay, to hit me end on. Okay, and this is like from sort of the things that should have been stories four years ago department. Um, but E.L. James is reportedly in talks with people who run theaters in the. I think this is in the UK um, no. to turn Fifty Shades of Grey into a musical. Um, someone on the inside or who claims to be on the inside says that there's been massive hype around the books and producers know that the stage adaptation will sell out in minutes. Uh, so they're saying it could be the sort of thing that hen parties, which is British slang for bachelorette parties, yes, uh, right. will flock to with all the steamy scenes and that tourists will love it too and uh i know we've got somebody working on sort of a parody post at book riot about uh yeah. like songs that would go in the 50 shades mm. musical i have seen the movie i do not know how you translate this to the stage <laughs> I, well i mean uh, i mean it's not like sex and nudity don't happen on stage at, in you know theatrical productions um well, I, I would just say it's, it'd be a very interesting prop department. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, it makes, I mean, look, it, one thing, I, uh, a friend of mine works in the musical theater business, and one thing that musicals have a problem with is sort of brand awareness, right? A brand new musical mm -hmm. comes out of nowhere, and they're fantastically expensive to start, like several million dollars to get onto the Broadway right, or like West End stage. the first night costs a jillion yeah, dollars Yeah, like the rehearsals it. and the previews and all this stuff and, you know, orchestra and... So that if you have any brand equity, uh, I sound like a real jerk <laughs> now, but but like there's a reason that you know Jersey Boys and even Wicked had Wizard of Oz tie-ins and Harry Potter and the Cursed Child and you know there's a reason that most big the Lion King all that kind of stuff is because there's already a built-in fan base for that stuff which helps them enormously and it's the exception rather than the rule where something like Book of Mormon or Hamilton, um, you know. Take well, I mean, anyway, we could go, but those even have brand mm. equity because Miranda had won a Tony for In the Heights and right, the Book right. of Mormon had sell. I mean, even those things. So it's not a surprise if you take this giant selling series, and also musicals on the whole are, you know, a lot of women, I think predominantly women, go to see that. So it makes sense to a certain extent. Now, it just so happens that the content of this particular thing. Uh, seems a bit dicey uh, as a stage adaptation, but I don't know. Maybe yeah, set design, uh, theater set designers are amazing. Like maybe they could do something fantastic. I, I just don't know. Yeah, but. I think. I mean, it could be visually very yes. interesting on yeah. stage. I think where I'm, where I kind of get hung up on it, aside from like uh, that, I think in general, like having seen the film, like you can separate yourself from a movie a little bit more you know, yes. than you can from seeing a stage production. And there well, is... you're literally in the room with the actors. I mean, <laughs> right. that's very uncomfortable. And there's like a degree of awkwardness in 50 shades, um, yeah. that is unintentional, but is very present. Uh, and I, 
I'm reacting to like imagining myself sitting in a theater watching that happen and not be not like having the sort of freedom that you have to respond to a movie when you're either in a theater where they where, where the actors don't know that you're responding. Well, the, the um, very the, the conceit of musicals itself is sort of absurd at the base, which is you have people singing these big numbers about, right, right. you know, and then at least one of these numbers is going to have to be about BDSM to some degree. At least one of them will be. Like most uh, of them. Most of the, and that is a very, I mean, my shoulders right now, I don't, I, I, <laughs> that's like someone took a, took a, took a, the Hulk took an accordion, just squeezed it down. It's, that's what my shoulders are doing right now. So we're like I, running the gamut of Jeff feelings today. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, and we're going to end here. I, I, I'm going to I'm gonna have to go, you know, take a warm bath and loosen up because it's very, very uncomfortable. But, I mean, it, it makes sense. I, I would never in a million years go see it. I can I can see the Hindu, which is the, the Hindu and stag do or the British equivalents of Bachelor or Bachelorette <laughs> Party. Um, I can see that as being a, a top thing. I've been to a couple stag do's and Hindus, and on the whole, it's much more body, even than American versions, from what I can tell. Uh, yeah, that, I that's just... my own experience of it is I can see that that's – it might be, yeah. yeah anyway. I was going to say, like, in a world where Magic Mike Live exists, I can't yeah. imagine choosing to go to the Fifty Shades musical <clears throat> instead. Um, but maybe I guess it's all about me. casting, Rebecca. It would all be about <laughs> casting, I suppose. Um, <laughs> on that note. On that note, let's wrap this show up. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you can email us at podcastatbookriot.com. Thanks to our sponsors. It's all absolutely fine. Go check that out. Um, and Madison Reed, uh for getting your hair turned into different colors. Um, We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.